0: Welcome to OverInvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and I'm here with my co host Gabby. Hey! We are going to talk this week about the second season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, the new sitcom by Tina Fey and her partner Robert Carlock, which has been sparking some debate online for a variety of reasons, some less positive than others. Uh, so, the show premiered on Netflix last year. Was originally developed for NBC and then um, they didn't pick it up, which is sort of a mystifying move since NBC's programming is famously bad. Uh, but Netflix Netflix did, and it premiered to generally positive reviews. And this is the second season, and I would say some of the problems from the first season have persisted, which we'll get into for and get into in a minute. I just should say at the beginning, um, this was kind of interesting for me to watch because 30 Rock was like, is one of my favorite shows ever, was a huge, huge influence on me when I was younger. Um, I went to college in New York City and 30 Rock was airing, came on the air when I was in high school and then was still on the air when I was in college so I went to a women's school school in Manhattan and like everyone in my college was obsessed with 30 Rock and Liz Lemon like it was a meme in my school like everyone loved her loved the show obsessed with Tina Fey like it was this big big thing still one of my favorite shows Um, so when Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt was announced I was really excited, Um, and I really liked the first season a lot, even though I had some problems with it, because even though it's different from 30 Rock in a lot of ways, I think it's pretty obvious that it was made by the same people. There are a lot of kind of rhythms that are very similar. And uh, Tina Fey's uh, film work since leaving uh, 30 Rock or finishing 30 Rock has not been excellent, I think it's fair to say. So it was really nice to see her go back to television, which I think is sort of what she's generally better at. Um, but there were some problems with the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which have persisted in the second season. So do you want to want to say a little bit about those, Gavia, if we can get into that? Yeah,
1: well, it's this really interesting combination of, I'd say maybe 85% of the show is really funny. They have this incredibly... High quantity of jokes, interesting like weird humor, which you don't necessarily see in a lot of mainstream sitcoms that are just set in a sort of generic New York setting. And then, in amongst that really smart, insightful humor, you have this little kernel of it's not unexamined racism because it's very clearly examined. Like the 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 one thing that this season really kind of hit home for a lot of people is episode three. Um, which I feel like we should probably talk about this just at the beginning of the episode, just to get out of the way, because it's definitely the worst thing this season. And while, like like I said, a lot of the rest of the show is really interesting, they just kind of don't seem to understand what people were criticising about the first seasons. There were certain aspects of season one that kind of received some criticism online. And obviously, like a lot of sitcoms and American comedy in general does receive criticism um, for being racist in some way. Um And episode three, which was written by a writer named Sam Means, but obviously it's kind of under the umbrella of Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, uh, was kind of like this response to the concept of anti-racist internet commenters. And it has um, the kind of secondary main character, Titus Andromedon, who's like this aspiring actor who has a one-man show where he, a gay black American man, is communing with his former life, which is a geisha. And he is performing... I guess you'd describe it as geisha makeup dressed as a Japanese woman and he advertises this show and online there's like a website of people who um, campaign for better Asian representation in the media and they start calling him Hitler and complaining about it and they're like we're going to show up to your show and protest this. And when you do get to the show, the kind of punchline is that once they've seen his performance, they're so moved by his incredible former life as a geisha that they're crying. and They're like, I don't know how to deal with this. Like, what do we do now? We're not angry anymore. There's a punchline where one of these protesters, during her kind of post-show confusion about not being able to deal with not being offended, says, I can't breathe. And then she's like, oh my God, I can't say that. And then she kind of dematerializes. And it's just, it's really tone deaf because i feel like perhaps on some level they maybe thought that it would work as kind of absurdist humor but it definitely just comes across as like a pure ideological message from the writers of the show which is people who are criticizing racism on television in the media are just doing it as a hobby and they like to be angry whereas what this actually is is a show written by white people where they've made a joke that's offensive and then they're responding to people through this episode, which is also really offensive, and they don't seem to understand what they've done wrong. And it didn't work at all.
0: Yeah. Um and we'll get into what the offensive content in season one was in a second. But uh what was so baffling about this episode was that in addition to being really just gross, was that it just didn't make any sense. Like yeah, I mean, narratively also, it in didn't. the course yeah,
1: yeah, it it wasn't funny either. Like, and it, no, like even it if you kind of look at it through the lens of oh, here's like a joke, which I personally would find offensive, but other people wouldn't. It was like it felt like a really kind of lazy scenario posited by someone on Reddit who's trying to argue about SGWs. It's like it was just not. It wasn't the caliber of humor that you see in the rest of the show.
0: No, and Titus's character has you know various arcs throughout the show that have nothing to do with this particular kind of like episode with this past life thing, his whole performance as this Geisha is, I don't even know that, whether to say it's out of character for him. Cause it's just such a weird thing that it's hard to assess, but it doesn't have anything to do with his character over the course of the rest of the season. So it just was sort of narratively incoherent in addition to not being funny, in addition to being offensive. And you just walk away from it feeling both offended and also kind of pandered to like, what was the point of including this except for the writers kind of saying, fuck you to the audience, which is not pleasant as a viewer. Like, you don't, you don't want to be watching that. Like it's, and I also think that there is stuff to criticize about the kind of culture of the internet. Like the internet can be pretty fucked up. And this was not, the way to do it, it, yeah. it felt i mean like... it, it felt like it felt like not seinfeld the sitcom but seinfeld the
1: man as a guy in his late 50s complaining about college students silencing him because he wants to make a sexist joke you know yeah. <laughs> it was not it was not nuanced it wasn't informed it didn't seem to understand what the issue was and it really felt like a problem of i guess the show was like editorial control We kind of think of this as like a Tina Fey show, but it's a Tina Fey and Robert Carlock show. And this episode specifically was by a writer named Sam Means. He wrote a book once called A Practical Guide to Racism, which you can probably gather from the title. It's kind of a a satire. Um, And he also worked on The Daily Show. And he was not the right person to choose to write this episode. I don't know if he pitched it or if this was something that was discussed in the writer's room or what. But yeah, I think, Morgan, you have some thoughts of this regarding the way that comedy is written between like a group of people and the way that the show is perceived as a Tina Fey show.
0: Yeah, well, and I've been thinking about this a lot and I say this, I mean, I want to stress this strongly that I, I don't say this to um, sort of relieve Tina Fey of the burden or guilt of this because she and Carlock run the show which she is clearly the most famous and powerful person associated with it and she ultimately bears the responsibility for the content that they put out. But I think in TV in general, there's this idea that one person is authoring the show. And that's just not how television works almost all the time, unless you are Nick Pizzolatto writing True Detective, Um, which fortunately is not often the case. You know, TV is written by generally a pretty large group of writers and comedy specifically often works as people like bouncing jokes off of each other in a room. So you know, it's hard to say like how an idea like this arises. Who is responsible for it? But also, then if the writers' room is primarily white, and in the case of uh, this show, I looked up all the people who've worked on it, and a couple of them only did like one episode last year, and so I think a couple of them came on this year. But in total over the course of these two seasons, there have been 14 writers, seven of them were white men, uh, six of them, excuse me, are white women and one of them is a black woman. It creates an echo chamber, right? Like there's no one there to say, actually, this sounds like a terrible idea. Or if you are the one person who thinks this doesn't sound so great, like you're not going to want to speak up. Um, And I think that that creates a real problem. And clearly on this show, it did like this episode is a complete disaster. And the other big element that on the show that hugely does not work is what was the big problem in the first season. We've kind of done this backwards, Um, which is I think what this sort of internet comment episode is in reaction to, which was that Jane Krakowski's character, Jacqueline is this very rich uh, sort of trophy wife, um, or trophy wife to this very rich man, and it turns out that she's secretly Native American, and kind of ran away from her family to the city to live this different life. And, and, and like in season one, it was really, that was like one of the dumbest twists
1: I've ever seen. So because bad. Because for the whole so show, it's kind of like, this is really interesting, like it's fun, it's, it's lighthearted, but it's kind of an interesting concept. I wasn't as invested in it as I am with some sitcoms, but it was great and then they had towards the end of the season they kind of revealed that jane krakowski's character was native american and i was just like it was like whiplash or something i was just like what are you doing like was, why and then it like, is it, so and it was weird because like in season two i feel like was better in that regard like they kind of went deeper on that backstory for her they were more thoughtful about it it was like an interesting subplot for her because in this season you see her sort of clashing with her parents because they're both like well-meaning they love her but she doesn't belong um, like where they're living in like a more traditional setting and she kind of belongs in the city but she really wants to get more in touch with her heritage so she's trying to arrange these charity events to help like her family and her neighborhood back home um, unlike her native american relatives but even though they have definitely like made this effort to make it more thoughtful and complex in season two you can't get away from the fact that it's this white woman who's playing a native american person and also in season one that was introduced as a punchline and it's still basically
0: a punchline in season one i thought it was a terrible idea and just unbelievably stupid and offensive but i could on some level see like what they thought they were doing right i was like okay so this was the joke you thought you were making you're trying to make fun of her kind of it didn't work but like okay and what they should have done... Is forgotten just, it. Right, just exactly. Their ties. But they decided seen, to double down. Right, they should have seen the response and said, okay, we were trying to do this. Clearly that didn't work. We're going to not do that anymore, right? And what they instead did was, like, tur- like steer hard into that turn and just, like, double down on it. And they did try to make it more thoughtful, but it that's not enough because... You can't get away from the fact, as you say, that it's Jane Krakowski, who's very white, playing this Native American person. And it just winds up leaving this kind of, like, sour taste in your mouth as you're watching, even though Jane Krakowski, who's such a good actress. She's hysterical. But and she's, she's obviously, it's like this role, just like
1: in Thirty Rock, a role that she's perfect for.
0: Yeah. And there are even a couple of moments where she's having kind of, um, like, serious emotions about her family and heritage, which that she plays perfectly. And yet you're sitting there and you're just like, but you're white, you're a white lady. Like this doesn't, it doesn't scan at all. And it's just really demoralizing when you see people writing television that is inherently a medium that has to adapt in some way to the audience, which doesn't mean that it has to take everything the audience says and just like change everything. But very successful TV shows are on the air, generally speaking, for a long time, right? And like time passes and things change. So the shows tend to shift somewhat too. And really good showrunners, I think, are willing to sort of look at what they've done and say, okay, what worked and what didn't. I mean, yeah, it's essentially a matter of listening to criticism, and I
1: think here right. they very clearly listened to criticism, and then they took the wrong message from it.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Like the, literally the opposite message you would we, want them to take.
0: Turned around, <laughs> and instead of saying, "Okay, that didn't work," they said, "All these people on the internet are mean. They're being mean to us. They're spoiled." fuck you, we're going to write a dumb episode about it, and we're going to do it more. It was like, okay, that's great. Like, good for you. What? <laughs> like, um, and it's just kind of depressing, obviously in and of itself, but also I think that, like, 30 Rock just did such a better job of this um, and had a number of really complex and interesting black characters. There's a great Wesley Morris essay on this that we're going to link to in the show notes that I think is the best thing that I ever read anybody write about 30 rock. um, That kind of contextualizes that show in history and the way that it depicted both black characters and white characters in the context of race and class that is just so good um, in terms of how the show played with both of those things together. And what I think is so interesting about this show is that it does really well talking about class and it can't do race really at all. There's obviously Titus is a great character and there's some stuff in the first season particularly um, about his experience as a black man that's very funny and very sharp. It don't go into that as much in the second season. Um, but like broadly speaking, the show's grasp on race is really bad. <laughs> But the class stuff is really strong, especially since you've got like
1: the main cast is like predominantly women. So you have this kind of trip take of women. You've got like Jackie, and then you've got Kimmy, and then you've got the landlady whose name I keep forgetting.
0: Yes, I also... <laughs> we've forgotten her, but she's yeah, yeah Carol Kane. who's yes. amazing in the show. She's fantastic, um... and who's in this in this season? Her kind
1: of main subplot is that she's completely obsessed with her neighborhood being gentrified.
0: Yeah. And it's just like unsurprising to me, given the fact that this is a show written almost entirely by white people, that they are much better at talking about class than about race. But those two things are entwined. So you really should be able to do both of them to get at those things deeply.
1: Um, I feel like right now we should have, if this was a TV show, we'd have the little graphic where it'd be like a sparkling star rainbow and it'd be like, it's intersectional over yes. the
0: screen. <laughs> ah, um, But why don't we talk about the stuff the show does do well? Because I actually, for the most part, really, really liked it. I think, as you said, around 85% of what it does, it does really well. It's just that sort of kernel of stuff that is bad. Yeah, I Um, mean, it's this really interesting combination of being very much like a
1: mainstream sitcom, which everyone can enjoy. And it's also quite weird, but it's not something you could describe as a weird offbeat cult sitcom. And it still works as something you can watch like one generation after Friends.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that is really interesting to me about it, um, and I'm going to keep comparing it to 30 Rock because I think the sort of what's similar about them, and what's different is really interesting, is that they're both very much about New York, right? And there's things about them that are so specific to New York City, clearly written by people who know the city so well and love it. But they're approaching it from different angles. So, Kimmy Schmidt, as people, I assume everyone who's listening to this knows what the show is about because we (laughs) haven't actually. Well done. Well done getting this far if you don't know what the show is
1: about. about (laughs) Actually, we have had a few messages from listeners. I've seen people being like, I've not watched anything you've spoken about yet. And it's like, how are you getting
0: through an episode? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but, like, she's been in this underground bunker held by John Hamm for 15 years, right? And so she's sort of stuck out of time and is adjusting to um, modern life, and they derive humor out of sort of things that she doesn't know about or get or whatnot. But there's a way in which the world that she is living in is also sort of, out of time, right? Like, she and Titus have all their, like, cassette tapes they're still listening to and they yeah, don't have to internet. she the kind inner... of coincidentally like... moved in with someone who doesn't use the internet, which I
1: think is a really, right. it's a really kind of fun touch because I feel like there's a lot of TV shows where the writers have definitely not figured out how to use the internet properly or how to incorporate social media into their show. And this is a show which is obviously airing on the internet and it's starring someone who you have an excuse for them not to be using the internet because they've spent the past 15 years in a bunker and before that they were a middle schooler. Right. But it, it works because they have, you know, she moves in with Titus who also doesn't really use the internet and when he needs it, he goes to the public library, which obviously loads of people do. And then also yeah. in
0: this season, you have Kimmy becoming an Uber driver. <laughs> yes. So it's this sort of strange combination of like very specific modern stuff and then also like they don't have a functioning oven and like... And again, like they're still listening to weird fake '90s songs on their. I mean, tapes,
1: that's very right? realistic for a person in their late 20s, early 30s, right now. <laughs> yeah. No functioning oven and listening to nothing but '90s music—very real. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, but there is like a kind of fairy tale quality to it, right? Which is explicitly addressed actually in the season where she talks about like when she was in the bunker, she had these sort of fairy tale fantasies. But like Carol Kane is very much a sort of fairy godmother type character but in a hilarious, like, vulgar New York way. Like, yeah. it's a sort of crummy fairy tale, but in a romantic sense. Like, she's come to New York to live, and it's all great, except that they don't have an oven. But it's fine, it doesn't really matter if they don't have an oven, like, whatever. Um, and so it... I, I really kind of like the unreal, real sort of common mix of stuff they've got going on. I do think that sometimes the show becomes weirdly both broad and specific at the same time as a result of that tone. Right. So with the class stuff, like, uh, Jacqueline is now the ex-wife of this phenomenally rich man. And so her social circle is all these like spectacularly wealthy people. Um, and there are certain specific jokes about that, like uber rich class that are, hilariously funny and specific at the same time they are kind of caricatures of hyper rich people which is fine like that's not a problem but I was thinking of it in comparison to 30 Rock which obviously you have Jack Donaghy in that role. Right and the sort of like satire there is very tied to like media and business and sort of like bourgeois culture that like Liz lives in and then also the like wealth he occupies and I think that there's something more kind of grounded there, but also the show has a kind of savvy knowingness that is usually shared by the characters, right? Whereas on Kimmy, the audience often knows more than she does about stuff. Both about her and about just like the world. And I so I mean there isn't a smart you're... character on Kimmy. Everyone <laughs> everyone on Kimmy Schmidt is an idiot because Kimmy yeah.
1: is really naive and well meaning and sweet and easy to fool. Jackie yeah. is an idiot. Yes. Uh, but this really interesting kind of manipulative but failed manipulative trophy wife idiot. Yeah. You know, Carol Kane is I don't know. I mean, I guess she's yeah, she's very she's got like a very limited worldview. And Titus is just this hilariously sort of he's this really kind of venal, self-obsessed, yes. like, lazy guy who just yeah. wants to be a performer but like doesn't make an effort, which I really enjoy because there's so many you know, there's so many characters who are played for comedy who are either failed actors. You know, maybe they're not talented or they're not very. They're trying hard and they're failing, it. it's like it's really clear that the reason why he's not getting anywhere is because he's not trying at all. <laughs> and they make it really explicit. And for some reason, I find this hilarious.
0: Yes, <laughs> like
1: it's, like really it's cruel often humor. true.
0: It's often true. He's he's not making any effort. <laughs> like
1: huh? like when you meet someone, they're like, you know, I'm I'm a creator. <laughs> And it turns out they they had an idea for a book once and they like took notes for it three years
0: ago. (laughs) They've been thinking about it since a lot. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think I think that there are things about that that are both like interesting and then limiting. I mean, so it's obviously like it's good that they didn't make the same show as 30 Rock again, like, that would be boring and also you just it just wouldn't work, you can't do it. Um, but I think that there are both positives and negatives to having that kind of different perspective, right? So I do think that there can be a feeling of distance between the viewer and the characters. I mean, I can obviously only speak for myself, but I was very involved with the story especially in the second half of the season I think it gets a lot stronger and also there's much less racism which really helps get you get you involved <laughs> um but uh it also just kind of the plot consolidates I think a, second seasons of comedy shows I think often and this is probably true with dramas too but I was thinking about comedies and preparing for this there's often a kind of scattering effect with the plot right so if you're Doing the first season, you have to plan the whole arc, and you're starting with the characters, right? So in the first season of Kimmy, like she's rescued from this bunker, and that obviously jump starts a very clear path forward for the show. And the end of the first season is the trial of the reverend who um was the one who kept her in the bunker. Um so like, like Brooklyn 99, the big conflict of the first season for the main characters is um like Andy Sandberg's character and the captain of the police. Uh, precinct don't get along, and then by the end of the season they do kind of get along. Um, then in the second season, it's sort of like what do we do now? And I think oftentimes these shows get a little bit scattered because they're trying different stuff out, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. I think the second season of Girls is one of my favorite seasons of TV ever, and it's very much like that after having a first season that's very, very sort of contained. Um, and I think the first season, the the second, this season of Kimmy Schmidt, excuse me. The beginning half of it does feel a little bit like they're just trying a bunch of stuff out and not really sure what's going on. Yeah, I and mean, the, th-
1: the first half of the season is kind of self-contained. They've got it in a time loop.
0: Yeah. Because
1: like the, the first episode opens with like a scene that you then see at the end in like episode five or six or something. Right.
0: Um, And it's almost like they have episodes that are... It's not that they're totally non-serialized. They sort of stand alone a little bit. And then the second half of the season gets more deeply into basically Kimmy's trauma from having been kept in a bunker for 15 years with this man who clearly has been raping her like this and the other women who are down there like that's never explicitly stated but it's pretty yeah. obvious that that was what was going on and it's on.
1: dealt with so well definitely it's it's dark humor because it's a comedy about someone who was kidnapped and Presumably raped by a cultist, and you, they, they kind of call back to it and sometimes when she's in like a love scene with one of her love interests. You know when she tries to have sex, she'll like elbow him in, the, him in the face or put him in a headlock or something. You know, I think it's kind of the first time I've seen something where you can describe it as like dark humor and gallows humor, but it's not shock value humor and it's also not really adult rated like it's weirdly childlike but the subtext is incredibly dark and emotionally complex they've really thought it through it makes sense character wise and the way she reacts to people they've really got this very cohesive idea of how she should be progressing after being after escaping from the bunker and that's why like this season they introduced tina faye's character who's her therapist who is just amazing her kind of gimmick is that she's an alcoholic so during the evenings she's this really wild character and during the day she's this very sensible therapist and she and Kimmy form a friendship slash patient doctor bond but when this character showed up I was just like Morgan is gonna flip
0: (laughs) (laughs) it was catnip to me Morgan loves therapists (laughs) what was so funny is that I like TV shows love therapists. There are therapists on so many TV shows. They're you everywhere. would
1: actually die at the therapist on Person of Interest, who's like this attractive young woman who <laughs> the main guy has shitty conversations with and then ha- like makes out with. And I'm like, this is the worst subplot this
0: show it's, has ever done. <laughs> they are always awful. It's always so bad. Like, you get the sense that the people writing this stuff have never been to therapy or they have and just decided that reality doesn't matter. Or they went like two times. As Obviously practice. the one exception like, is Hannibal where all of the therapy is so
1: incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so true to life. Um, it's like, like if, this... if, if, if therapy was written by the brothers Grimm. Yeah.
0: Um, but uh, like Mr. Robot had a therapist on this past season that was like oh. so absolutely preposterous. I was just sitting there. I mean, I, I strongly disliked Mr. Robot, which I realize is an unpopular opinion amongst people. I watched the, the first, first half show. and enjoyed it, and then couldn't make myself finish it. But I will, yes. and I think yes. I will like it more than you. Yeah. <laughs> you get, even you at the end might get a little bit. Um,
1: <laughs> I had to stop once they made the big reveal. I kind of my brain spiraled out of my skull.
0: <laughs> oh, but um. Anyway. The, yes. I was just like, I'm in, I'm down. Like, give this to me. And what was I thought was so great about this was that, while the sort of plot of what's going on, which is that uh, Kimmy sort of meets Andrea, uh, the therapist's name, um, when she picks her up in her in her Uber, uh, and then gets sort of entangled with her in this drunken state, and then winds up going. To her for therapy um, it's completely inappropriate they wind up having all these misadventures outside of therapy like in real life this would be a very bad idea but because it's comedy and because the people writing it unlike in most cases clearly know what they're talking about it worked really well like they were acknowledging the fact like this is very inappropriate (laughs) like this is not good and that was coupled with conversations both in her drunken state and also when Kimmy is actually in her office for a you know, normal therapy session that were so specific and accurate that it was just like amazing. I was I think I emailed you and I was like, I think her chair is the same as my therapist's chair. <laughs> <There> was <laughs> it was too much. There was too much. But even beyond like details like that and like the noise machine, which made me laugh, um, just like the specific kind of Stuff that they were talking about and, like, the insights that she was sort of making her have, um, I thought was just, like, so deep for a sitcom without being ponderous, right? Like, that is what you don't want to do. Yeah, it
1: was the polar opposite, for example, Studio 60 which i'm not (laughs) sure if you saw studio 60 but studio 60 is really interesting in the context of 30 rock because it aired basically the same year and this was aaron sorkin's show after the west wing oh yeah well i remember because i watched studio 60 first and i was a studio 60 person first because i had no taste i don't know how old i was then i guess like late teens or something but um like it was also about behind the scenes working at basically saturday night live and it was a fundamentally unfunny show about characters who take comedy as seriously as the characters in the West Wing take running the country. And it is like the living definition of Ponderous. And also the thing that really ruined it is the fact that these characters who are taking comedy very seriously are not writing funny sketches, whereas 30 Rock is the polar opposite because it's very funny and the characters in it are plainly writing bad sketches, because the show they're working on is like ranging from mediocre to absolutely garbage. Yes.
0: <laughs> and they don't really bother showing what they're working on almost yeah. ever. Like, like and occasionally, when they do show purpose. a sketch, it'll be just something... It'll be
1: like an absolute nightmare. It'll be something we'll, like garbage. the worst SNL sketch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember Studio 60, which I also watched. I feel like... I feel like that was on like before and then overlapping with 30 Rock. I can't remember. It was definitely the same time. It was was
1: basically, it was on for, yeah, it it overlapped very closely because I was annoyed when Studio 60 got cancelled and 30 Rock continued. And then afterwards I gained taste. (laughs) (laughs) And also I watched the West Wing because at that point I hadn't seen the West Wing. And then I realized that I was watching like the dregs of Aaron Sorkin's writerly soul draining down the plug hole and leaving his body
0: was the experience
1: of Studio 60.
0: I watched that and like knew who he was because he had left the West Wing you know not auspiciously yeah and my parents had watched that and um but I didn't really know who he was and I had like liked it kind of and then realized in retrospect that it had not been good I mean he also
1: recycles like like episodes,
0: lines and characters and names whole cloth right no no and was right, just writing about him and Kristen Chenoweth in that show, which was unfortunate. But um, anyway, yes, <laughs> <laughs> we don't like Aaron Sorkin very much. Um, but it is—I mean, it is a good comparison, right? Because there's a sort of inability with some writers to
1: be funny, have
0: levity about certain things. And then what this show does best of anything and its innovation that. 30 Rock never did, which was fine because it just was about something else, and I think 30 Rock is, generally speaking, a better show, um, but what this show has is an ability to address something that's really serious and be serious about it, but also be funny, which is really uncommon. Like, that's not something that most comedies can do with the sort of skill that this one does. Um... And I think it's really impressive. There's a moment the end of one of the episodes late in the season. This is a slight spoiler. um, But Cammie winds up crying about something. And she said earlier in the episode that she didn't cry once during the 15 years that she was in the bunker. And then she winds up crying about something. And... For the sort of couple moments when that's going on, it's it's not funny. Like, it's just a serious moment. And I was so moved by it. Like, I just, it was really got to me. And I, Ellie Kemper is amazing in this show. She kind of could do both things really well. And uh, the fact that they could kind of get to that point, having been really just funny up to there, I thought was really, really impressive. Um, and then the last couple episodes have some good stuff it's sort of not doesn't get quite as serious as that comes pretty close, especially at the very end um, that I just thought was great. Like really, really. Yeah. Thoughtful. I mean, the introduction of the mother is great. Like it's a really tight yeah. ending to the series. Yeah. There's stuff with her mom at the end that is just like, and again, so psychologically astute. You meet her mom and without going into too much detail, you can kind of see why she is the way that she is so clearly in a way that again like betrays very much that like the writers know how people work yeah um they're very emotionally intelligent and they've
1: also clearly put a great deal of forethought into what Kimmy's backstory was going to be aside from her kidnapping which is kind of one of the messages that she learns from her therapist this season is like look this really terrible thing happened to you. And also there's maybe other reasons
0: why you might be fucked up
1: Yes, <laughs> as everything always comes
0: back to the parents. <laughs> yes. Um, which is also like weirdly empowering in a way, right? Like, because it means the, the thing that defines you is not purely the fact that this awful thing happened to you, right? Like yes. there's other stuff, which is also a boon to the show. I think because the pitch of the show is really innovative and was really clever and, Led to a lot of humor, especially in the first season, but a show cannot be sustained on a joke about mole women for forever. <laughs> like it just can't go yeah, on. They went deeper in season like, two, and it really worked. Yeah, um, and I'd I'd be interested to
1: see to what extent what the audience picks up from that, how much it resonates with people, because I feel like I mean Tina faye especially obviously from Mean Girls and Thirty Rock, is something which plays really specifically to, I think, women aged 20 to 40. Yes.
0: And this is something that most media does not address. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in fact, you could probably watch both seasons. I can very easily imagine watching
1: both seasons and not considering the idea that Kemi is clearly a rape survivor.
0: Oh, I bet a ton of men. (laughs) And watching unbreakable kimmy schmidt i mean all i
1: have definitely watch. watched i definitely watched like a movie that was literally about rape once with a male friend who didn't realize that was what the film was about so it's like kind of, when i kind of watch kimmy schmidt i'm like i feel like that's slightly judgmental and perhaps insulting because obviously not all men etc
0: but However, yeah like it's done with a very light touch slightly less so this season i would say in the first season yeah the first season it was pretty subtle yeah. this season like she literally is like kissing a dude and then wax him on the head with a telephone <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> like is that hmm, what what could be happening here? It's like perhaps there's some trauma in her past. <laughs> like however, I am sure that there will be people who don't get what's going on. Although again, I think again, probably most of the viewership of this show is women and yeah. gay men. So um I mean from what you- I've seen like when the season came out on Twitter It was just
1: like loads and loads of women were marathoning it and like a handful of guys mostly gay guys and then a lot of them dropped off and see on episode three so that's another thing i'd be interested to see is whether there was like a statistically significant number of people just switched off after episode three or if that's just my personal filter bubble of people who reacted to that negatively on twitter
0: (laughs) i think it's probably Of the number of people who watch this show on Netflix, which is probably not a huge number anyway, I think it's probably not that many of them, but I bet there was a drop off. We will never know because Netflix doesn't tell us anything about...
1: Netflix is a box.
0: Yes. I do want to mention Mikey, who is Titus's love interest this season, who I feel like is the sort of major... Only major thing from the season we haven't touched upon. Oh my god,
1: had one of my favourite visual well,
0: punchlines from this show. Because this is a sitcom, it's, it's,
1: I mean, as comedies go, it's perhaps not 100% the best uh, visual punchlines as well as words, but like, it's pretty damn good. And my favourite is definitely when Mikey, Titus's semi-closeted construction worker boyfriend, is explaining how he stays in the closet with his co-workers and he's like oh yeah you know i airbrushed a hot girl onto my van and then the camera pans around and it's a picture of tilda swinton on his van And i was just like this punchline is perfect and it couldn't be more perfect for me personally
0: <laughs> oh God, amazing just it's amazing boring. oh i just thought i was so charmed him, the actor whose name I did not look up and so do not know because he's not famous uh, is so good. He is just superb. Um, He is this sort of like Queens guy who's really into the Mets and works construction and His name is Mike Carlson. Okay. He somehow manages to both be a stereotype and not a stereotype at the same time which I think when Well, what's so interesting about the show is that when it's working, that's kind of what it's good at doing, right? It's like stereotypes that aren't stereotypes. And then when it's bad, it's just bad stereotypes that are not good. Because he's such a sort of like, you know, sort of like working class guy, very into the Mets, also happens to be gay, but like feels very much like a distinct person, which I think is... Also very much credit to the actor who does a really good job with him. Um, And just doesn't really feel like the kind of person you see on television that much. Like, I I got a real kick out of all the Mets jokes. I believe he makes a joke about a Met who was a Met when I was watching baseball with my mother many years ago. So I was like, oh man, that's a throwback. (laughs) I definitely, weirdly, one of the things I really appreciate about this show is...
1: The number of very specific pop culture reference jokes that i don't get uh, <laughs> because in general i kind of feel like a lot of the time a pop culture reference joke is a bit of an easy laugh and not necessarily a joke like the obvious example is big bang theory where most of the pop culture reference jokes are not jokes they're literally just a reference to firefly or something and then a laugh track which isn't funny but in this one there's this really great scene where i actually paused the episode and looked up what they were talking about, because so I was like, I bet this is hilarious. And <laughs> they take time out of the episode. This is like a classic Tina Fey, Robert Carlock, 30 Rock thing as well, actually. They take 30 seconds out of the episode to have like a mini sketch. And it's a flashback to when Titus was married to a woman and was in the closet, and he, or he was about to get married. Um, and it's kind of talking about their backstory. And there's a scene with him and his fiance making out on the couch. And they are watching snl and during the present day the girlfriend says she was into skinny white guys and he was into you know he's just into guys but they're watching snl and in the background it cycles around between hootie and the blowfish and like, <laughs> and, like this one specific like skinny white guy and then the guy who played the headmaster in mean girls that guy who was on snl yeah. and i had to like look up all of these people individually to work out what the joke was and after, <laughs> i was like that's hilarious <laughs> but it required so much background knowledge that i just didn't have because like i don't watch snl i'm not american i could not i had no idea what hootie and the blowfish looked like but it turns out it's a band where there's a cute black guy and like a skinny white guy and there's a bunch of other people in it and i was just like You're, that's amazing like this there's, there's so many levels and it's so unnecessary and you took the time to build a set and have them in there like 90s outfits just for the thirty second punchline it's just like that's the kind of thing that makes them such good comedy writers and it's just it's a brilliant reference even if you don't get it
0: yeah well 30 rock was always like the joke density on that show oh my god like you could watch those episodes over and over again and be like oh that was a joke that i didn't get The first time. I mean, I'll rewatch that stuff sometimes when I'm like in a bad mood, Um, just like random episodes, and you know, haven't seen them in years and years. And there's just so much going on. Like I may have picked up on at the time because it's been ten years since I've watched them, but it's just completely hilarious, and the amount of thought and care and density of stuff going on there. Is very, um, it's very like Veep ish, which I appreciate a lot. There's a lot of like dramedy stuff being made right now, which I also really enjoy. I love most of Girls. Um, I really liked Looking when it was on on HBO, and it's obviously like the trend now is these like Los Angeles dramedies, of which there have recently been like seventeen. Like it's just all that's being made I have not watched any of them maybe at some point I will Uh, but there's something to be said I think for just being funny and smart enough to make a show that has like five jokes a minute and is that sort of committed um, to just being really hilarious Uh, it's really hard
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean I I think like, like, like you've got like 30 Rock and you've got community which is obviously a different kind of humor for much of its run, was, like, that good.
0: Well, Arrested Development, too. And Arrested Development. And, like, stuff that you wouldn't pick up on unless you've been paying attention
1: the whole show.
0: Oh, Arrested Development is probably a much better example. And also, they
1: have so much continuity. Like, the level of continuity in Arrested Development is just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think anything (laughs) matches up to the sort of, like, long-term... Every six months, someone
1: on Reddit or something will pick up, like, a new ongoing joke that was happening in Arrested Development that, like nobody picked up on and I'll find out about it through our mutual friend Yashoda I'll be like
0: holy shit there's a new Arrested Development joke that's found by the archaeologists digging through the best of time oh my god yeah I mean that was that was a feat I mean I don't know how how their minds were, were sadly their Netflix season was I think subpar I watched around four episodes and then was like, I don't think I want to do this to myself. I don't need it in my life. I and I liked I've that Joe them, finally so. had his terrible romance with the Majestic Huh. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I saw about that, but I did not actually witness it. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, just, just watch the seasons that aired on air, and they were great. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I realize some of the youths listening to this may not have, which is horrifying to me. Oh, God. Because that was,
1: yeah, how many years ago was that? I mean, I wasn't watching it on air. I didn't have a TV. Many years. Yeah.
0: But I also made everyone I knew watch it. And then we were all obsessed with it, which, like, nobody else was at the age of, like, 15. Like, it was it was an interesting time.
1: We would um, not have been able to interact because I had not. <laughs> seen television at that age <laughs> there was like the first tv show i ever watched was buffy on dvd and i think that was about the age of 15
0: so that, that was, was like one of the first that and like loss for like the first two shows that i yeah. actually like got into an interesting combination it was it was a wild, a wild <laughs> i mean those are both really strong choices because i watched buffy I...
1: which is an incredibly high bar to start with and then the shows that I started watching in my late teens and then when I went to university were Supernatural and Stargate Atlantis, which are both atrocious. <laughs> but I was so invested in, and I still am to this day. Yeah. At some point, I'm going to catch up with Supernatural. We may do a Supernatural episode where you just listen and cry while <laughs> I talk.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I have enough familiarity from having endured the internet. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Now that we've had that digression. Yeah. TV watching habits when I was 14 and 15 years old. I guess the last thing to say before we finish is that I want to sort of come back to the writer's room thing and the diversity on the show and broadly in Hollywood because this is something that I think about all the time is I think a lot of people who follow TV and sort of the industry behind TV do.
1: Especially the moment because obviously there was so much coverage for character deaths at the moment because there's been several shows where either you know, lead female characters or people of color or gay characters have been killed off or actors have left the show. It's very difficult to untangle the things that go on behind the scenes there. So sometimes it's because an actor has decided to leave for personal reasons or there's conflict behind the scenes, or it's a writer's room thing, which is very clearly what's happening with Kimmy Schmidt.
0: But like, one of the things that's so interesting to me about television is how it's made, right? Like, almost no TV show that's on the air for enough time doesn't fuck up majorly in some way. And I don't mean in this way, I mean just in terms of plot. Because like if you're on for six years, like you're gonna just mess something up. Like it's too much time. Because even if you have like planned out as much as you can from the beginning, like something is going to change. And like it's so much energy to keep that up for six years. Like you're just gonna sort of fall down. But that's part of what's interesting about it is that you're watching people do this creative thing in real time. Um, And usually it's a bunch of people contributing to that creative process, even if it's one or two people who are sort of supervising and have a vision for where it's going to go. And recently there have been a couple of shows that have been sort of written by one or two people. And I'm always sort of intrigued by that because I feel like in theory, That's an interesting thing. And I would like to see a show that's written by one or two people that actually works. Because I don't think it's impossible that that be the case. But I have not seen a great example of this. So there's True Detective, which is a complete clusterfuck. I'm not going to go into it. It's, It's a disaster. There's Penny Dreadful, which we have both watched at least part of. Yeah, I mean, I was very into Penny Dreadful for like one
1: season, and then I got halfway through season two, and it kind of, it lost its way a bit.
0: Yeah, and there's the Nick, which was written by two white men. Uh, Penny Dreadful was written by John Logan, who is also a white man. Who is fantastic. Like, I mean,
1: John Logan is just... I mean, I love Penny Dreadful, but like it had so many flaws that so, seemed like they should have been
0: solvable. There are a couple of issues there, but the major ones are that it didn't really was not really capable of dealing with class. This takes place in Victorian England. It's kind of in a fantasy world, but. Like Victorian England, class is inimical to discussing that, right? Like you can't, you can't really get away from that. And he was trying to, and it doesn't really work. And also did some really racist stuff. And then The Nick takes place around the same time, but in New York City, and the race stuff on that show is incredibly well done, I think, and it's super sexist. Like they, ju- they're just so bad at it. You see, that's what put me off watching
1: The Nick because I've heard super positive things about it from a lot of people and then I kind of hear from you like I just like I can't hack it like I can't be bothered
0: (laughs) I I would actually recommend like anyone listening to this the first season of The Nick has some problems in that area and I found it them minor enough that like I loved it like the Soderbergh's direction is amazing the acting is great And then I made it like three episodes into the second season and it was so unbearable. And also the writing was just not very good. And it was just like, I'm done. But you look at those cases, right? And you think, okay, so in the best case scenario, television is a medium where you have a bunch of people in a room who can all have diverse perspectives, both in terms of race and gender, but also just coming from different places in life who can say, okay, actually that doesn't make any sense or just have a different idea for something. And that's actually really cool. Like you do need someone in charge, but there's a huge amount of potential there for really interesting ways of storytelling that are quite different from the ways we write novels, which of course is what television is always compared to. And instead what Hollywood has tended to do is put a bunch of people with very similar experiences and backgrounds in a room together. Which is what, I mean,
1: actually in the context of Kimmy Schmidt, that's SNL because SNL has spent decades sourcing their comedians from precisely the same background.
0: Yes. Um, And Kimmy Schmidt, actually, we should say, there are an uncommonly high number of women who write on that show. Usually there are not that many. It's just that they happen to all, with one exception, be white. Which is not great. (laughs) That's not a great. Situation. But it's how they've ended up with such
1: like a, you know they've had very deep, interesting, complex female characters in the show.
0: Yeah, and then also some race problems. Yep. Um. And so it's just it's depressing given that the way the medium is made would seem to allow for this immense level of sort of diversity of voices contributing to it, and instead what has happened which of course is completely predictable and unsurprising given the way that Hollywood works is the sort of like dominant voice, which tends to be white and male in this case is white and male and female. But I hope what happens sort of going forward is that less of that, less of that occurs. And obviously there are other shows that are doing better than this one on this issue. And, but, uh, yeah, that's that's my downer downer. <laughs> promise to end this episode on. Yeah, I feel like we have a bell curve. But we started in with, "Curious, what's wrong with
1: Kimmy Schmidt. We peaked with, like, fun. And then it's like, look, like, guys, gotta remember. <laughs>
0: The industry sucks. Maybe it is flawed.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the subtitle for this one could really be like your fave is problematic. Because even though Tina Fey is more of your fave than my fave personally, although I think that she's really talented, but she's such a classic case of someone who both is extremely good at her job and is very successful and also is kind of often trumpeted as this sort of feminist icon, I think somewhat rightly and somewhat wrongly, depending on... To what extent you're going to like dig down into the issue of intersectionality, but yeah, there is some big flaws going on there. She's aware of them. She's decided they're not flaws, and she's decided to uh, march straight through.
0: <laughs> yep, it will be interesting to see what they do next season. <laughs> like, what what is in store for us after this beautiful celebration of? past lives that we got this year oh i can't wait at least at least we're gonna get some quality john ham oh god yeah he's free now <laughs> yeah <laughs> there was not much john ham this season of kimmy schmidt but he is gonna be back yeah i am i am thrilled he was my favorite part actually of- i mean he was amazing last season oh it was god. a brilliant piece of casting i i was laughing so hard i was almost crying uh, and they did manage to get in Mad Men jokes. Yeah, know, even though he was for the most part not physically present. Even Mad Men jokes
1: that I got, having not watched Mad Men, <laughs> so like obviously I've absorbed a lot of culture. <laughs> but like, well done.
0: <laughs> oh my god. So uh, yeah, I think that's about all that we have. I think for... so. Yeah, I mean,
1: this is. I think it's going to be quite rare that we talk about a sitcom. On here because, as per the over invested title, neither of us are super invested in any ongoing sitcoms at the moment, but
0: except Veep, which except Veep, which we will end up talking about, we will talk about it at some point. But you should watch it. I'm gonna,
1: I'm gonna end up watching. I mean, I've watched the first season and I'm very into the thick of it, which is by the same showrunner
0: as Veep. Which we would also recommend uh, if you have not seen it. It's a genius piece of television. Um, In the Loop also was his film, which you do not need to have seen uh, the show yeah. to watch Brilliant. that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Amazing. Oscar nominated. Really? For what? For screenplay. Oh my god, yeah. that is very deserved. That's why Hilarious. I saw it at the time, yeah, because I was like, oh nominated for screenplay, like, I ought to watch it, because that's the person I am. And then I was just like, what is this? (laughs) I mean, I watched it because I'm British and I like politics, so
1: I'd seen the sitcom, but I was like, I've got to see the movie. And it's is—it's a really good standalone way to get into Armando Iannucci. And also, obviously, um, Peter Capaldi, the current Doctor Who.
0: Just everything about that is fantastic. So, yeah, if you have a chance to watch that, definitely catch up or... Or keep watching it. We will at some point at in some the point in the future future be discussing it. However,
1: um, um, and next week you can tune in where we will be discussing Avatar the <laughs> movie. We are, you know, this is something that we kind of we talk about periodically because famously Avatar is one of the most and for a long time the most successful movie in Hollywood history. But no one can remember what happens in it, and also from the perspective of the critical establishment, it is not remembered fondly but very
0: well received at the time by yes most people yeah
1: it was very popular at the time and then the thing that's really fascinating about avatar is that it's this huge hollywood juggernaut there's also a genre movie and it's by james cameron who's this been very successful with movies like terminator and aliens and he made this film which should have kind of had a star wars type fandom and emotional connection and with the exception of a very small minority of people who like to paint themselves blue and speak nubby I actually know one of those guys. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, with that exception, this movie really did vanish. And we're going to re-watch it next week. We're going to have an episode on it. I think it's going to be really interesting, both because we're both so interested in very high-budget blockbuster franchises. And also because this film is such a strange combination of phenomenally successful and weirdly bad, and also we have the four sequels happening. James that were Cap-
0: just announced, supposedly. I'm not going to believe that they're real until the, like, poster is in oh, the yes. movie theater. They've
1: been postponed like five times. Yeah. They keep re-announcing these sequels.
0: First it was, gonna, it was one sequel, and then it was two, and that was three, and that was four, so who knows? And he's going to film um, them all at once. Also, I saw Avatar in cinema and it was like one of the worst movie guy experiences of my life to date. It's like three hours long. It was miserable. I remember just like sitting there laughing and the like teenage boys who were in the row in front of me being really annoyed that I was just like in hysterics. So um, I'm making a real sacrifice for this podcast because I don't want to fucking watch this movie again, but I'm going to do it. I am so, very excited
1: to watch it again. I am going to get into it. We are going to go deep on Avatar. <laughs> we are going to watch those blue Smurfs. We are going to analyze the shit out of them.
0: Uh, and and we will be recording ourselves attempting to summarize Avatar before we watch it again. Are so- we?
1: I did not know that. That's a very good idea.
0: <laughs> we just put this in an email. So you didn't know this, but you forgot. <laughs> yeah, we're going to record us trying to summarize it before we've watched it, because I don't think we're going to remember anything except Unobtainium. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the plot of
1: Pocahontas, but I don't remember the plot of Pocahontas. In uh, the meantime, you can find all of the show notes for this episode on our website, overinvestedpodcast.com on Tumblr, overinvestedpodcast.tumblr.com uh, Twitter, overinvestedpod, and if you enjoyed the episode, please rate us on iTunes just give us a star rating, because that's how we find all our new audiences. So until next week, uh, good night from me, and goodbye from Morgan. Bye!